Alrighty, uh, good afternoon, um, everyone. We have Sebastian Braxton with us today, and um, we'll be, um, let me give you um, a little bit of a bio about Sebastian. So uh, Sebastian um, Braxton is the CEO for The New Life, a corporate wellness startup. He serves as a business consultant and the speaker for, for the Center of Innovation in North Carolina. He's a certified a real facilitator and ice house entrepreneurial mindset facilitator. He's also an instructor for the Bat Do CEO program. He's a founder of Fiat Fiat Lux. Feel free to correct me. Um, Fiat Lux. Yep. Fiat Lux. Great, great. And a consulting company that specializes in online mentorship of young professionals and young adults as well as business modeling and consulting and financial and innovation strategies. His latest project is an online entrepreneurial community called the Million Dollar Club that connects budding entrepreneurs with millionaires who are radically committed to God and missions. So Sebastian, welcome. Thank you very much for uh, joining, joining us today. It's a pleasure. Um, it's going to be interesting to hear your thought process about the strategy, brand development, your practical experience, how to approach this, uh, these matters. Um, as far as our, um, as far as our uh, structure or agenda for today, we'll start with an opening prayer. Mm -hmm. um, then as far as our uh, ground rules, we'll have questions in the middle of the session. So feel free to ask your questions um, along the way. Um, then Sebastian will have a presentation for us um, where he will um, open, um, open up his theme more and then we'll have Q&A along the way and we're close with a, with a prayer closer to 3.15 um, Eastern time. So right, Andre, in terms yes. of the, the questions, um, since they're not going to be in the Zoom meeting, are you going to be letting me know when questions come in? I will, yes. Okay, yes. perfect. I'll, I'll do that. All righty, let's uh, open up with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you very much for uh, blessing us so much with great speaker um, and great speakers in this conference, and especially thank you for Sebastian. He has such a wealth of uh, knowledge in his area of expertise. And we're just hungry to learn um, how to be better entrepreneurs, better business people in general, those that want to serve you and want to serve people. So please bless Sebastian, give him wisdom, help him to uh, touch our hearts and minds and help us to have a, a great, interesting, successful uh, session today. We thank you and ask all of this in your name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, thank you, Andre. I appreciate it. Uh, reading those introductions always sound a little bit more like uh, urban myth uh, to me. None of that matters, right, until it's time to deliver. Um, Andre, can you give me uh, permission to share my screen? I'm going to go ahead and uh, bring up my uh, presentation. Yes, I you should be able to do that. Yes. So I wanted to um, essentially to get started um, and really address the fact that this session is about defining your game plan. 
Um, I did send out the notes uh, to Christina. And so if you need to get a copy of that, you can either uh, reach out to her, uh, but I can um, also um, put my email here on the screen. See if I can uh, clarify that. Actually, I'll just remove it. So the, the main particular issue that we're gonna be grappling with today is how to prepare your idea and actually get ready for the market. Um, you may have an idea, you may have a ministry, you may have a social enterprise that you're trying to go through. And the foundational step is to do idea evaluation. That's the best way to prevent yourself from a tragedy as you move forward. There are a lot of people who have tried to start a business, try to create an organization, try to pursue um, a particular mission only to arrive at failure simply because they did not assess the proper risk. And we find this in the gospel of Luke chapter 14. And Jesus says, no man goes to war and first does not count whether he has enough right to win. And no person would go to build a house unless they count the cost and make sure that they have enough to finish the house. Otherwise it'll be embarrassed because it'll be halfway completed. And then, you know, the, the rest of the embarrassment that comes with that. This is a similar concept that happens in business. We need to be able to count a lot of the cost or what we may call the risk uh, that goes into pursuing different ideas and how, do we can, how we can actually reduce risk is one of the primary methodologies and mindsets of an entrepreneur. People think that as entrepreneurs, we're all about risk and we are but not in the way that people think. We're about minimizing risk, not about maximizing risk. And although it is true in financial investment, the higher the risk, the higher the return, stock markets are a lot more volatile. So you can get higher returns from that versus a treasury bond or investing in commodities such as corn or wheat um, or copper. Those things are a little more risky than treasury bonds, but a little less risky than stocks. So the return is right there in the middle. Um, and so this is the idea that we want to think about when we're talking about our business. Now, as we, as we go forward, I just want to, okay, having some problems with my presentation. Okay, there we go. All right. So the first thing here is this is an overview of some of the main areas that we're going to be looking at as we kind of move forward. So we're going to look at, first of all, at the bottom, you're looking at describing the problem. Now, in describing the problem is always the place where you start. When you're looking at your idea, every idea, whether it's a business, whether it's a social enterprise, a nonprofit, a ministry, you are addressing a problem or a desire or a need in the marketplace. It's something out there in the world that currently does not exist. And you're trying to come up with a solution to fulfill this particular need or desire. And one of the first mistakes that people make when they come up with ideas for a business or a project, even within a corporation, because corporations are now creating entrepreneurial innovative teams inside their corporation to keep innovating. Um, and one of the first things that I always have to teach a person who is trying to create an idea is you have to fall in love with the problem and not the solution. So many people are like, I want to come up with a cafe. That's a vegan cafe. Okay, that you're, that's a solution, but do you have a problem? So it's like someone coming into your house and basically telling you, 
hey, I want to fix your garage, but there's nothing wrong with your garage. Actually, if you could help me with my lawn, that would be great. Well, no, we only do garages. Well, um, listen, man, I got the best prices in fixing garages. Yeah, but I need help with my lawn. Well, you don't understand, man. I have the most innovative technology when it comes to fixing garages. Uh, okay, but I, I need help with my lawn. And it's like, when the market says no, it's actually pushing us in a direction of success. I used to say this when I used to call Porter and canvas door to door. I would always say to myself, the fact that people are rejecting me and telling me no is moving me faster to my next sale. So I don't waste time on people who are not the persons that God has for me on that particular day. Mm. It is very similar in business. When I'm getting no from the market, that should not be a point of discouragement. It should be a point of adaptation and response to the environment. Man, I'm over here trying to build solutions for garages when everybody keeps telling me they need help with their yard. Maybe I should start a lawn care business um, with a optional garage service so that if something happens, with their lawn and they say, hey, man, you know, something happened with my garage. Actually, we provide a service for that. Or I'm, I'm in the wrong market. These people don't need help with their garages. They need help with their lawns. So if I want to market to these people, I have to adapt. But this problem emerges because we fell in love with the solution. We're so obsessed about doing a garage business. We're so obsessed with doing a missionary training school. We're so obsessed with having a vegan cafe that we have not thought about the needs and the desires and the problems that are facing in the marketplace that we're trying to actually sell to. So the first step is you have to fall in love with the problem, not the solution. But most of the time when people come up with their idea, they don't even know what the problem is. They don't even know what the desire is. Hey, I want to do a vegan cafe. What problem does that solve? Now coming up with a vegan cafe in Fayetteville, where I live in North Carolina, you'd be the first to market because there is no vegan cafe here. Right. So there's a lot of people who can't find vegan food and they want to eat out. So you would be solving that problem for people who want healthier options or a vegan option in a market where that currently does not exist. Is there a question that came up? Not yet. Um, okay. I would suggest for uh, folks, if you... Uh, Please feel free to submit your questions. We see them here at the platform. We'll be, we'll be, Sebastian will be addressing them uh, concurrently. Okay. All right. So I just wanted to make sure. So when, you, when you're thinking about falling in love with the problem, so if I want to create a vegan cafe, I always have to take people back to Ted Levitt, who was a lecturer at the Harvard Business School. And he's the one that famously came up with the line, people don't buy a drill because they want a drill. They buy a drill because they want a one-fourth inch hole in the wall. So the question is, what does your product do for your customer? So people will say, well, Sebastian, I want to start a vegan cafe so that people can come and eat vegan food so that, and I'll take them through so that until we arrive at a point where they're confused and stumped. Well, I don't know, but usually one or two answers before that is truly why you want to come up with a vegan cafe. So really, you're not dealing with vegan cafe, you're dealing with eating options. So that's really the industry that you're in. You're in an alternate food industry in which people, there's the mainline fast food, there's the mom pop restaurants, and there are the, you know, typical ones, Chili's and Applebee's and Ruby Tuesdays and whatever, the P.F. Chang's and the 
Red Robins, on and on and on. We say, yeah, those are restaurants. But sometimes people are like, yeah, but I always have to find a vegan option. What if I went to a restaurant and everything was plant-based? So for me dealing with type two diabetes, for me dealing with high blood pressure or a cardi cardiovascular disease, my doctor's telling me I need to eat more vegetarian. I need to give up the red meat, but I want food that is healthy and tastes good at the same time. So when I'm looking at the market and the problem, I have to be obsessed with that problem is how do I give people um, the, 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 the healthiest food for their medical condition and make it taste just as amazing as the food that they had? How do I present food that makes them not miss the T-bone steak and the ribeye and the filet mignons that they're used to eating? See, that's my problem. But notice what I did. I formed it in the framework of a question. Because when you're starting your business idea, you want to be thinking about your problem that I'm obsessed with, but it has to start off with a question or a hypothesis that you're going to explore. Because every person who comes up with a business idea or a ministry or social enterprise, they're bringing a certain view to the world. That's a hypothesis. You think the world will be better or that some community of people who are being overlooked will have their needs met if your business existed. But that's a hypothesis. That's not a fact. It hasn't been proven. It hasn't been tested. So when we look at describing the problem as we're going through the presentation, I'm going to start walking through some components of this. But essentially, you have to start with falling in love and then framing that in the context of a question. What is my question that I'm actually asking? What is my hypothesis? I believe that if we create a vegan restaurant in Fayetteville, a lot of people who are trying to go plant-based because of documentaries or for health reasons or because they just feel better eating vegetarian food and they want a lot more healthier, diverse and well ta really tasty options, they're going to love they're going to love my food. So then someone would say to me, Sebastian, uh, so where do we go from there? Well, then we start clarifying um, the solution. So here you see in the top left of the screen now we start asking the practical questions on what is your solution to this problem? What are you proposing? So what are you making? What makes it unique, better or special? And are your target customers both able and willing to pay? Now, a good example of, and I'll get into this in a minute as we're going through the presentations, a good example of this and a bad example of this. <laughs> There's a lot of them on both sides. But in looking at this, clarifying your solution. A lot of people, when they come to me with an idea and I ask them that simple question, what are you making? See, they'll say like, I have an idea for a business. Like I want to do a lifestyle medicine clinic that treats diabetes and does hot and cold treatments. And it also does mud treatments. And it also does clay things for dermatology, but it also has opportunities for exercise and a gym and a basketball court, but also it needs to be way out in the country so people can get fresh air and be out in nature. And I'm like, Okay, so what are you making? See, if I ask them about their business, they're going to tell me a hundred things, but I would say, what exactly are you making? They'll say, okay, well, I want to make a, a lifestyle center. Okay, that's what it is. It's a lifestyle center. That's what you're making. You're not making the trees, right? You're not making <laughs> the gym equipment. You're making a lifestyle center that has access to nature, has gym equipment, has, you know, uh, opportunities for hydrotherapy and hot and cold treatments. 
that's those are all sub details of ultimately what you are making. When you ask the question, what makes it unique or better or special, we're going to talk a little bit about how you identify that in a minute. But this is a critical thing that a lot of people don't think about. Every single new enterprise, and I have to emphasize this, any new business, any new ministry, any new social enterprise, it has to be an innovation. It cannot be more of the same. If you're creating something that already exists, it's going to die. And people say, yeah, but Sebastian, it's, um, it's got to be innovative. Either it's innovative based on where it's located. Well, I created a, a mission school in China. Well, yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of mission schools in China. So that would be an innovation, right? That's, it's innovative, not because of the idea, but because of the location. Um, or it's innovative because of how you do it. So Uber didn't create taxiing. Taxiing was already a thing, old, old thing. The problem was how you paid and contacted the taxi. Whose cars did you use? So it was no longer yellow cab, blue cab, white cab, you know, the little British famous taxis. All of that's rushed aside. What if we use other people's cars? So now, now Uber is like, we're going to create a taxi company with no cars. Really? Yeah, we're just going to get people to use their car and be able to call the taxi right from their phone through an app. So that was the innovation. But taxi service has never been a new solution. Same thing with Airbnb. They didn't create the hospitality industry. They just innovated it, did it a little bit differently. And because of that, it makes it unique, better, or special going on and on. So Sebastian. Go ahead. So um, we're waiting for questions. Let me let me ask you a bit more here. Yeah. So how do you, um, so there is, right, there is a problem that you, there is a need that you're trying to, that you're trying to, to fulfill. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you pretty much give a framework here. Here, this is, if you already have a need in mind, this is how you would evaluate it. Um, is there, let's say someone, a person somewhere in, in Colorado wants mm -hmm. to start a business, a business that will have in the core serving people or fulfilling the need. Mm -hmm. um, they can use the framework. What else would they do at the original stage? If they have a few ideas, how would mm -hmm. they go about evaluating them initially for being feasible or practical? Would they consult with other people? Would they would they go somewhere? Would they read books? Would they get consultant? Would they get who, who would they talk to originally to um, to at least filter those ideas that are not practical? Right. So allow me to speak about your question very directly. So I'm going to kind of pull up the white the whiteboard here to kind of address your question. So when a person has a business idea, right? So let's just say this gentleman, he's in Colorado, okay? So now that he's in Colorado, he has this business idea. And the question is, where does he start? Well, the first thing is there's the three concepts of design thinking, right? So the first thing he has to answer the question of desirability. So how do you okay. know people want it and how do they want it, right? So this is his first question. How do human focused design is something that was actually not a thing until recent times. Um, a lot of times people build things because they felt people needed it. That's it. There was nothing desirable about a lot of the things that used to be <laughs> created in the marketplace. 
But then you also have the, the second space where you say, okay, but is this thing even feasible, right? So I sat down and listened to a business presentation and a guy told me that he wanted to create a business and he was looking for investment to basically build a rocket to rival, uh, not to rival, but to support the SpaceX program of Elon Musk. And it would require $130 million. I'm like, well, that's not feasible. No one's going to give you $130 million for a possibility. And he's like, yeah, but if we, if we set ourselves up, Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX will just buy us. I'm like, how do you know that? So, and that's going to lead me to this concept that I'm going to call, it's an idea that I like to call the, the $100,000 um, idea. Uh-huh. So a lot of times, right, when you look at the concept of gambling, I said, let's assume, right, you went to a casino, you have $100,000. Now, you have two options, right? And I'm, I'm just giving these two options. I'm not saying this in real life, but let's just say you only had two options. You could either gamble once with all 100K, okay? Hmm. Or you could gamble $1,000 100 times. Which one would you choose? Probably number two. <laughs> exactly, right? So here's the point. When you're building your idea and we're talking about the question of feasibility, a lot of people, the reason why they're burned in starting their business is because they chose option one. Like, and I can say this, like doctors are some of the worst business people. And I, I don't mean any disrespect to them, but here's the reason. is because they have the money. The most innovative people were people who didn't have the money. So they had to find another innovative way to do it. But see a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist, they got the money to say, oh, I'm going to open up my own practice. I'm going to buy a building and I'm going to do this and this. And because they have the money, they just gamble it all on one thing. And I'm like, what if you're wrong? If you open up that practice and it flops, you just lost a lot of money. So you're learning the same lessons as the guy gambling $1,000. It just cost him a lot less to learn that same lesson. Mm-hmm. So the key in starting your business in the feasibility stage is how do I gamble a thousand dollars a hundred times rather than a hundred thousand one time? That should be always your mindset in building your solution. So if you want to build a vegan restaurant, I tell people cook the dishes and offer them through a meal service or offer them as a dish at a restaurant and say, Hey, I have a dish concept. Would you be willing to take the recipe, test it at your restaurant? Or do a pop-up restaurant, do a booth, just like a hot dog stand, small little booth, pre-packaged, right? It's already ready to go, catch people on the road. Hey, I have a little, a vegan lunch, da-da-da, it's eight bucks. See if people will buy it. They tell you what they like the food, you want the feedback. Now, the, sex, the, the third component to this hmm. is what we call the viability. So viability, obviously I can't type here today. So viability is essentially, will this thing make money? So when we combine each of these, each of these ideas, the whole concept is that we want it to be desirable, we want it to be feasible, and we want it to be viable. So in each of these concepts, right, I'm going to take this idea and I'm going to say, okay, how do I do desirability? Well, number one, I need to speak to customers. 
Okay. I'm just going to shrink this down to make it fit. So I have to get out, hit the streets and get to customers right away. Makes so that as soon as I have my hypothesis, right? Cause this is the whole point. I got to have my hypothesis, which is a, you know, a vegan restaurant cafe in Fayetteville, right? Will meet an unmet need for healthy alternative uh, takeout. So that's my hypothesis, but now I need to go ahead and test that. So my first question is desirability. So I got to get out and actually speak to people. So what kind of people have this problem? That's, and that's what we talked about in the presentation. Who has this problem? How many people have that problem? We need to quantify it. So as we go through desirability and feasibility and we say, okay, how do I test this at very low cost, right? How do I reduce the cost of my risk? And then obviously in your, in your viability, you're really focusing on, will this thing make money, right? How do I make this thing self-sustaining? There are so many businesses, so many ministries, so many social enterprises that never ask this question. Can it support itself? And this is exactly what Ellen White is talking about with self-supporting ministries. But a lot of our ministries are donor dependent. They're not self-supporting. So they didn't design it in a way to maintain itself. It's one thing to set up a school, but how is that school going to support itself? Is it just tuition? Is it registration? What if we had an industry, which is what you know she often calls it in her writings? Well, have a farm, have this on site, provide music lessons, right? Whatever it is, teach English classes to the, to the community around you if you're in a foreign country. So whatever it is, you need something that says, okay, it's desirable, it's feasible, but is it viable? Will this thing actually make money, generate profit to support itself as well as future needed innovation? Sebastian, so what if, what if people would argue, especially among, among our audience, there are a lot of good Christian committed, um, committed people. Some, some people would argue that, okay, if God put on my heart a desire to have this type of business, viability or being self-sustainable will come in time. I will sort of start with what it is and try to, um, to commit, try to, to do my best, invest in that business, and then see, um, you know, then believe that it's going to work out on the, <laughs> on the finance end too. What's your thought process on that? Oh, wow. There's a, I could do a whole seminar on that mindset. Um, so, let, let's, let's look at it, right, biblically first, and then I'm going to address it from, a, from an organizational business standpoint. Biblically, right, there is nothing that God ever created that was not planned with sustainability in mind. When God planted creation, he created the sun before he ever created plant, right? Right as plants are created in day three, he already had light in existence. There was already water on the earth. Right. So sustainability was already there when he goes to humanity on day six and says, look, I made all the plants in the of the ground for your food. That means he created the plants and the, the need for man before he ever knew that he needed it. So that means that God supplies the needs that he creates. He already had sustainability in mind when he created the world. When we go to the Hebrew sanctuary, there was the tithe 
because God already had in mind sustainability of the sanctuary service in mind. If the priests are going to do this, baking bread fresh every Sabbath, going through all the sacrifices, cleaning the sanctuary, maintaining the daily prayers, morning, evening sacrifice, how are you going to support that? Well, this whole tribe is set aside, but if they're set aside, they can't grow their fields. They can't be sowing all day if they're doing sacrifices all day. Well, we're going to have tithe because God programmed sustainability. When we go into the church and Paul talks about that very same concept that, you know, the laborer is worthy of his hire. You don't muzzle the ox. So if we preach the gospel, then we live of the gospel. That's, that's Paul's language. So biblically, this idea that God placed something on my heart and I don't need to worry about the sustainability of it, is it self-supporting, it will eventually make money. This is a, a flaw that biblically God never left us an example of. So the only organization that that applies to is the church because God has already built a plan through tithe and offerings to sustain it. But as soon as you leave the church context, we're not talking about a church enterprise. We're not talking about union division or conference where they have a sustainability model already created. Once you become a non-church entity, you are a self-supporting organization, which means you should not be taking tithe money or offering money from the church. You should be self-supporting so that you can strengthen the church rather than weakening and spreading its finances thin. Now, on the secondary component from a business model standpoint, if your idea is so God-given and it is something that's on your heart, and that means God gave it to you because it is needed in the world. If it is not self-sustaining, you won't be doing it for very long. And therefore, the very thing that God asked you to do in the world will no longer exist. Even when we go back to Ellen White, she sold her writings. <laughs> she wrote books and sold them. In fact, in order to finance Kellogg's medical education through University of Michigan, she borrowed against her own writings. So she borrowed from the bank to finance and Ellen White died in debt. She had not paid off all her debts that she took in order to move the church forward and the mission forward in so many different ways. So she was so believing in health that she borrowed money to help Kellogg, right? Her and James White helped Kellogg go through medical school. And then when the sanitarium came, the same thing. So in, in looking at this, this idea that the printing press that James White owned before he gave it over to the church and that spawned us to come up with the name Seven-day Adventists because we need to own our own stuff at the behest of James White. Same thing, the printing press was self-supporting. It was self-sustaining. So when people make that comment that, oh, God laid it on my heart, eventually, no. The last quote I will mention on that is um, Ellen White writes um, about Jericho in Joshua. And she says that Joshua prepared his army for the battle of Jericho as if the battle depended upon them alone. That's how he prepared. He assumed no help from God. That's how he prepared himself. Then she says, but he went into the battle as if the battle depended on God alone. That's mm -hmm. how he worked. But his preparation was as if God was not going to help. So if you apply that same mindset to preaching, 
oh, God gave me a sermon on my heart or even this presentation right now. Oh yeah, I'm going to talk about idea evaluation, but I do no preparation because I'm like, well, God is going to provide, right? Once I start talking, if you apply that model to preaching, if you apply that model to any other ministry or service in the world, it would not work. People would clearly see, as the Bible says, you should be instant in season and out of season, which means if you're in season, you should be prepared because it was time for you to speak. So there's preparation. So my whole point is, is the sustainability of your ministry is a part of the preparation to actually execute said ministry. Sebastian, thank you very much for expanding on that question and for this structure. Um, I have a question here. Um, so in the previous slide, you also talked about innovation, that mm -hmm. innovation is critical, paramount to, to the original business idea. Yes. Um, well, the question would start, would go with this. Amazon was not the first uh, bookseller online and Facebook was not the first social media. And Nicholas Tesla was the inventor, but Thomas Edison made his inventions or was, um, was uh, selling Credited. those inventions. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so when you look at that, uh, you know, um, Steve Wozniak was <laughs> creating or uh, innovating and Steve Jobs uh, was, was selling those ideas. Is, is innovation really needed? Is, re is innovation really critical there? Or, um, or how would you even define innovation in that in the very sense of it? That's funny. Um, so when you, when you look at your question, right? And the question is about, is innovation essential? And all the ideas, when you say Amazon, well, Amazon wasn't the first seller of books. That's true. But the difference is online. They understood why they were unique or better or what made Amazon special. So Amazon might have said, well, yeah, you let me just use Walmart as an example. Mm -hmm. Walmart was not the first store to sell a whole bunch of stuff. Right. All in one store. Walmart's not the first to do that. What made Walmart special and what makes it special to this day is supply chain management. Mm. We can reduce your inventory because you get to see our systems of how much we're selling. So if you get to see the supply chain is now like, well, Char Charmin, you know, toilet paper is like, well, we can see that there's only 30 left on the shelf. So rather than us um, having an inventory warehouse, a distribution center, Walmart has a distribution center. I just have to replenish their distribution center exactly what they need. And I start getting into just-in-time manufacturing. So I just Correct. produce just enough based upon seasonal data that I'm getting from the seller. When before that was separated, Walmart, their innovation was they bridged the gap between the supplier and the seller, the retailer. So the store wasn't an innovation, but the idea of how they went about their store was innovative. Let's go to Amazon, Jeff Bezos, right? One of my favorite stories of how he started. I mean, he was sleeping in his car. I mean, he, he almost lost his marriage to start Amazon. You think his wife thinks that he's wrong now? Obviously not. And, but at the time, Jeff Bezos thing was the web needs to be utilized. It's not being utilized. And so he thought, okay, we're gonna sell a lot of different things. And Amazon started off just selling books. That's all they sold at first. But 
when they transition into an online store, they realize that the system, similar to McDonald's, we have a system in place of how to make these burgers, right? There are other burger joints, right? There were other, there were other places that sold fries and burgers and shakes. Like that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't like an innovative thing. What made McDonald's innovative is the same thing that made Amazon innovative was the systems that they had in place in order to go about that selling process. So Amazon took that data and said, hey, we should do featured. We should do two-day shipping. Let's do a prime membership, which was a subscription model, right? Other booksellers didn't have that. So I remember being one of the first prime members back then. Prime was something that, you know, um, you only paid once a year. It was a lot cheaper. And the crazy thing was, was that when Prime went full on subscription model, right. Amazon's whole approach was, you know what? Shipping is the biggest hassle in the world <laughs> for any online retailer. And Amazon solved that problem for itself. And it was that innovation of Prime two-day delivery. We're going to tell these retailers, give us a whole bunch of it, and we're going to be able to deliver it to people in two days. So I didn't go to Amazon necessarily because they had the cheapest prices or because they were the prettiest web store. Most people went to Amazon because you could get it in two days. So if I need a textbook, this other store is like, oh, it's going to take you seven, seven days to get this textbook. And you're like, I'm a college student. Of course, I didn't order it on time. I have an assignment. Amazon could do two day or even one day shipping. I was like, no way. So everybody started going towards prime membership. I can get anything in two day shipping. Automatic. I never have to pay shipping again because they saw the retailer when the person was shopping, once they saw the shipping cost, they would back out of the cart. Oh, wait, nah, yes. man, the shipping costs more than the product. So people are like, so Amazon said, you know how we can hide that cost, charge you an annual fee. You never, in your mind, you're not paying shipping, even though you actually already paid for it. <laughs> in the very cost um and then they pass some of that cost off to their to their sellers on their platform and that's what made amazon different so when people say is innovation necessary it's absolutely necessary you have to have that answers that second question and solution what makes it unique better or special if you say i'm making the exact same thing you can't come out and say I'm going to make a fast food restaurant that sells everything McDonald's sells, but it's going to be called McBraxton's. Like people are going to say, why would I go to McBraxton's when I can go to McDonald's? If you come up with a ministry, we're going to create a, a missionary training school. Why would I come to your Braxton missionary training school when I can go to Arise, when I can go to Mission College, when I can go to campus, when I can go to AFCO? Like, why would I go there? Give me a compelling reason. So innovation is that compelling reason. And if you don't have that, it's not going to succeed. And you're not going to be able to position yourself in the mind of your customer. That makes sense, Sebastian. Thank you for expanding on this. Yeah, absolutely. Any, other, any questions have come online? I've like barely broached this presentation. We're, we're like down to 15 minutes. Right. I'm, I'm loading it. I think that. Okay. Yes. 
So let me just say, in terms of evaluating your problem to your earlier question, um, and one of the things that we do once you do the criteria for your problem is we say, is this, you have to have one to three of these to actually know that your idea is even worth pursuing in terms of profitability and impact. So these three these criteria, usually I walk people through and say, do one of these fit, at least one to three have to apply. Otherwise it's not even worth pursuing. So once you say, okay, is it popular? That means ideally it's a one, the market is 1 million people have this problem. It's a growing problem. It's urgent, people need it right now. It's expensive. It's costing people a lot of money, like pharmaceuticals. Um, is it mandatory, like a law changed? So like when you think of TSA and now you have to go through security in order to fly, that gives you an opportunity to create a business because it's mandatory, they have to have it. Um, is it a frequent problem? So you think about uh, toilets, people have to use the bathroom, they have to use water. Um, they have to have air conditioning, right? This is something that is a frequently needed issue. Um, and so because of that, it creates an opportunity for your problem to actually be something that's worth pursuing at the same time. Um, I want to mention before we open it up for questions is that one of the things I love to use is this matrix. Um, and I'm going to try to make this a little bit bigger. Um, to expand it. But when you look at this matrix, this is a matrix that we say after you've kind of, well, actually, let me back up before I go into this. So after you've kind of gotten your idea, your question, you're going through your feasibility of how can I solve this problem? I usually tell people you want to come up with 20 different ways that you could solve this particular problem. And you list them down and you say, okay, here are 20 different ways that I could list this problem. I could address it. And as you address it, you say, you answer these questions, what makes it unique and special? Are they willing and able to pay? Who's my target market? And is the solution already being offered? So you just kind of go through this thing and then you choose your top five ideas. Now I'm looking at these top five ideas, then you go in through, how do I establish my advantage in my top five ideas? Um, and then from there, you go back to this same chart, filling it out and completing it. And then I like to go through an, an idea evaluation. So you take your top five ideas and you rank them according to problem, solution, or your unique insight. And then you score them. And this is a kind of a more scientific um, measured way to say, oh, I should really pursue idea number four because it's scored really high in all the categories. And this is where we're assigning numerical values to the different components of your idea and its success. So this is uh, something that I like to use because I find that it's really helpful for people to ask these questions. And my idea is it's a popular one. Um, and I wanna give it a score. One is not at all. Three is absolutely it's popular, right? So if it's a one, that's a low score. And as I understand things are scoring really high, it gives me a better sense of what's a good idea to pursue. Sebastian, yep. um, one of the questions what opportunities uh, do you see today given the post covid situation i mean you you definitely have a uh, you definitely have a framework how to assess what do you what do you see at this point well i think there's going to be um there's going to be two 
automatic issues, right? Markets that are going to be really open that are being created by COVID. Obviously, Zoom has a monopoly. So right. to me, um, I can already see opportunities for creating um, contextualized platforms. If platforms are going to be coming a lot more commonplace, people are going to want more contextualized things. So being on Zoom is great, but what if I already had a button that said, oh yeah, I'll pray for that. So I just click that button and everybody in the community says, I'll pray for that. Or in a business meeting, we can say, yep, that task, I'll take that task. And it automatically takes it off the chat board and creates a, a to-do list for me when the meeting concludes. So to me, there's going to be a lot more highly contextualized software and features for communities who are going to be using this technology during the pandemic and post-pandemic. Because people are going to assume uh, we don't want to go through this again and not be prepared. Um, another one is going to be disaster preparedness, right? The next time a pandemic comes, are you going to be ready? And what are those businesses that are going to provide the services, consulting, setup, so that your business can quickly adapt in the middle of a pandemic? On the health side is another growing one. One of my uh, consulting um, customers, clients, she has an online herbal business. When this thing went into lockdown, her sales went up by 80% online. So even though they said the economy was suffering, she was actually growing astronomically during COVID situation because it's all natural herbal supplements, mm -hmm. cell rebuilders, things that strengthen your immune system, et cetera, all using natural herbs, which people were not trusting vaccines and pharmaceuticals during this time. A, they had no solution. Um, and B, there was very little known about COVID at that time. What were its effects? How do you identify? So people were just like, buying all of her stuff up and her suppliers were running out of her supplies so quickly that she started ordering, you know, 10 times what she would normally order just to get it on hold. And even to this day, we just talked and she was like, they're out. Like they don't even know what the crop yield is going to be for a lot of the herbs, if they're going to get it in time huh. in order to deliver to her what she needs. So I see natural supplements um, is definitely going to be a growing market. Um, the last thing I would say is, um, online communities and, uh, digital experiences. Um, people are going to be a lot more, uh, what's the word I want to use? Apprehensive. Okay. To just go back into the world and just do things without thinking about the possibilities. You could get sick, another COVID breakout, whatever it is. So I also see the fact that people are gonna still, they still wanna have fun. They still wanna be entertained. They still wanna be able to engage, but you're gonna to have to do it in better ways than just Zoom, you know, or <laughs> we're gonna have a Zoom game, share your screen. So I think one of the future innovations is going to be things like, um, you know, uh, now the NBA, for example, is doing virtual fans. So you can log into the app and you can virtually be in the game. And your digital avatar will appear in the NBA stands, right? So you're like, and they have cameras that can represent your angle and view of the game and everything as if you're actually watching the game. So to me, that's a virtual experience um, using virtual, you know, three uh, virtual um, reality technology. So a lot of digital experiences are going to need to be really enhanced. And I can only imagine that elderly people who are reticent to go back to church 
Right. I would love that. Like, oh, just put on this thing and be able to see the pastor, see the member sitting next to me, um, be able to kind of feel like I'm at church, um, even though it's digital. Uh, live streaming experiences are going to probably go up. That's a definite opportunity for innovation. Um, and then safety. I mean, that's your ability to respond because one of the main issues during COVID was coming up with enough tests and getting those tests out. And that clearly needs innovation. Um, oh, yeah. you, you solve that problem, you'll be a billionaire. I mean, <laughs> overnight, basically. So testing kits, developing that very quickly um, is also going to be a, a really big opportunity for innovation. Thank you, Sebastian. Thank you. We have another question here. So um, Grace, she's a practicing physical therapist. She's mm -hmm. asking, how do we find, how do I find an audience? Our business is focused on wellness class, uh, herbs, and exercise via gardening. Mm -hmm. What ideas would come to your mind? To get an audience to attend those things? Mm -hmm. Well, um, normally when, when I look at ideas that already exist, this is more for me a consulting question. Um, I walk people through what I call human-focused design because most of the time, if you have an existing uh, business or thing like a, like a cooking class or whatever, and you don't have attendance, the question is, is the desirability. It's feasible. You're obviously doing it. But what's killing the viability is the desirability. Let me use a quick illustration and I'll answer the question. Mm -hmm. uh, the guy who created the MRI machine, he was like really like beside himself that he finally got it scaled with the magnet and everything to get it in hospitals. Um, and it, you know, was manageable. But what he noticed is almost 80% of MRI scans happen on children in pediatrics. And so, but he noticed that most people go through these machines, never go back. It was one time and they got really poor reviews because you got to tell a child to sit in a machine, don't move, don't touch the sides. It's super loud, right? And this was scaring kids. So he came in and realized that desirability was lacking. It was viable. It was feasible. He built it. Hospitals needed it. It could help doctors, you know, assess certain things, conditions. But for, if you don't get patients that want to go through with it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hurting what you're trying to do. Right. He realized that he had nothing for the human side of it. So what he did was he worked with some designers and creative specialists at IDEO, um, their creative consulting agency. And what they did is they completely redid the whole experience. So when a kid goes for an MRI now, you go into a hospital, it's like a whole story. So you walk in and then and the doctor and the nurse and the person administering the procedure is like, oh yeah, listen, you are now a part of a jungle adventure. And now as we walk in, it's all decorated with nice colors and it looks like a jungle. And then when they tell you, listen, now, in order to survive the terrible river from the anaconda, you have to go inside this machine. This is our boat that we're sailing down the river, but you can't mm -hmm. touch the sides. If you touch the sides, the anaconda is going to get you, right? And it's mm -hmm. going to be loud noises, right? Because there's a lot of animals going through, but don't worry, right? If you're brave, we're going to survive this. And we're going to get to the other side and we'll be able to get this prize, whatever. 80% increase. Kids were leaving the machine like, oh, I want to go back. Can we go do this again? all because he changed the experience of how the kid looked at the MRI machine. He made it desirable. 
looking at the gardening and the supplements and the cooking classes and all of that, getting an audience, you have to really tap into a human core motivation drive. Um, there's a framework developed by a guy named uh, Yukai Chow. It's called the Octalysis. And he basically took the concept that we call gamification, which is applying human design to issues in which people are not making money. <laughs> so it's like we're taking something that's not a game and we're using the core drives of what makes people want to do things when there's no reward. Um, so when you look at this, for me, the first core drive is epic meaning and calling. So if you came, for example, like uh, Tom's or the Love Crunch Granola brand, they tell you every pair of shoes you buy from us, we donate a pair of shoes to someone who can't afford them. Every time you buy this thing of granola, we donate it to a homeless shelter or a community in the world that doesn't have access to food. So that's an epic meaning and calling. So if you go and say, hey, come join our community garden, right? Help learn gardening, natural supplement, you know, supplements and herbs and food. Every meal that you prepare, we actually donate it to a family that can't afford dinner that night. You're going to get an audience because people are going to say, dude, like, I want to learn about gardening. Yeah. But if I can learn about gardening and then this helps feed a family that doesn't have access to food, now you've given, you've given me a core human motivation to be there. Um, and so I could go into other hum, human core drives, but that's one of the first things I would tap into uh, to get an audience in that, that space. The other option I would also look into is partnership. Key aspect of people's business model is partnership. Sometimes we provide the product, someone else provides the audience. As a speaker, I was approached by several brands when I was in college um, because they saw that my, my uh, club was having a lot of attendance on campus. And so they're like, man, you know, this is, a, so then we get approached by Coca-Cola, pizza places, and they'd say, listen, I'll donate free pizza if you let us sponsor your event. So they were willing to pay me $3,000 Wow. To speak and they'll bring, cause they just want people to try the pizza. So for them, that's better marketing. Cause everybody's there. Everybody's eating the pizza. <laughs> um, I remember we did a vegetarian taste fest at Tufts university in Boston um, to promote vegetarian meals uh, eating Chipotle donated 80 burritos subway donated a 50 foot sub cut into pieces Um yeah, there, there were a lot of things that came out of partnerships. So sometimes you may have the product and you just need to partner with someone to actually bring you the audience. Um, they have the people, they, they're, they're the ones that have your market and you're providing value to their community. That becomes a natural partnership. That makes sense. That makes sense. Sebastian, uh, thank you very much for addressing these questions. Um, I know we have three minutes to go. I okay. wish we, I bet if we were to stay for another hour, we would be still speaking so many, so many good questions and so many, many really good thought process that you, that you bring to the table. Um, I know that, that the people are interested to have the framework you, you have. I know you send me the handout. I actually yep. uh, talked to, to uh, leadership of uh, young professionals they will be posting all of these materials and presentation at, at uh, asiministries.org slash 
YP. Okay. Planning for young professionals, and there you can find you can find the um, the, the handout, handout that uh, yeah. that Sebastian had for you. Sebastian, thank you very much. I would say, do your uh, final uh, word for us, final advice, and uh, finish with the with the prayer. Sure. Um, so my last two things would be uh, number one, get a mentor. Um, that's why I started my online Christian mentorship program because. I would never have succeeded in business, in ministry, in anything without the mentors in my life. People who believed in me, were willing and able to tell me what I needed to hear, not what I wanted to hear, um, and held me accountable. Um, so I think mentorship is for sure a key component. The second thing is um, the number one predictor of success of a business is traction. You have to actually get sales. Don't listen to people that are not willing to pay you for your solution, who are not willing to engage by time, by money, or by effort. Like, you have to have traction. This is so true in the church, and it's true outside the church. People don't like to join things that are not started. They like to join things that are already happening. So if you come to this mind, it's like, hey, man, I'm thinking about starting this. People are going to be like, nah, <laughs> that's a lot of effort to get something started. But if you already have traction, you will attract more investors, you will attract a lot more customers, you'll have social proof that whatever you're doing is working and has an impact. Um, and you'll be learning what you need to learn to keep improving it and making it better. So those are the two things I would say in my last comments. Um, but anyway, um, people need to get in touch with me. Um, I'm sure the organizers can provide my email address or whatever. I'm happy for people to reach out to me if they have questions. Um, I'm always willing and when I'm able to help people work through different problems or solutions. But anyway, let's pray. Thank you, Sebastian. Father in heaven, um, Lord, the time has failed us. There is no way we can go through all the elements of um, how to really work through our idea, uh, building it up from the ground and how to address some of the risks, the issues, the obstacles along the way and to minimize the, the wasted money or wasted time and opportunities. Lord, the truth is, is that you are able to guide us in this process. You provided experience in the minds and lives of people around us. And so Lord, we pray that you would lead us to those who can help us even where we are not knowledgeable. We also pray, Lord, that you may grant us the perseverance, that you may give us the mindset that is necessary in order to be successful. And Lord, that our motivation may be the glory of God and the upliftment of humanity. Mm. Continue to bless everyone listening. Continue, Lord, to teach them. And Lord, we pray in a special way that you will help so many people accomplish their dreams and to find that your word is true that as we delight ourselves in the lord he will give us the desires of our heart this is our prayer and we trust that you will help this to be our experience as we offer this prayer from our hearts in jesus name Amen. this media was produced by audioverse for asi adventist layman's services and industries if you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit 
www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.